Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Volume 704, The First Break, for March 1st, 2016. Visit broadwaybullet.com and subscribe to our podcast and never miss a single episode. Stephanie Clemens and Andrew Chappelle are each swinging nightly for the mega-hit Hamilton. They talk about the whole process and their acting breaks before Hamilton. We're going to hear two songs from String, the new musical by Adam Guan, and James Tyler is a current DG Fun Fellow and is breaking big with two other fellowships. He tells us about it. And Jonathan Rockefeller tells us how he used some moxie to become Boz Lerman's personal assistant and protege and then develop the play and obtain the rights for the very hungry caterpillar. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. A location sponsorship also goes out to the longest-running play in America, Sheer Madness, now finally in New York City at the New World Stages. Go check out this funny show that'll leave you laughing and guessing the entire way through. And no, that's not what they told me to say. I saw the show. Up Close all right, I am sitting here with two very talented people who uh, get up on stage and uh, give it their all every night with Hamilton. Uh, they are stopping by to talk just before going on tonight. We have got uh, Andrew Chappelle here with us who is uh, swinging, covering five different leads and an ensemble, so he's got an amazing amount to remember. Oh, and- yeah. And we've got uh, Stephanie Clemens, who is, among many other things, the dance captain for a show that is kind of nonstop. It's true. <laughs> Very nonstop. How are you guys doing? Good. good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us. So how long have you guys been with uh, involved with Hamilton? When did you guys come on board the, the train? Oh, goodness. Stephanie's probably has a more interesting <laughs> well, journey than I do. I... Um, 
um, amongst other things also includes um, one of those jobs is I'm also the associate choreographer of the show. So I have been on board with Andy Blankenbuehler, our esteemed and wonderful choreographer, for a very long time. Um, I was doing a show called Bring It On that he, myself, and Lin-Manuel Miranda were working on, and we were on a dinner break, and I heard my shot for the first time, and we... Um, so I've been around since the songs were sort of forming, and I also did In the Heights with Lynn um, years ago, and I remember him coming home from that vacation, which is now be- going to become theater lore with his <laughs> book, you know, rereading it. And I remember before a number in the second act, Carnival, we were about to go on stage, and he was telling me about how this book reads like a Tupac biggie, you know, modern day sort of rap rite of passage and I was listening to him going this sounds totally crazy I don't see how that could possibly happen so before the idea was you know the genesis of this magical thing that has now become Hamilton um, I've sort of been around for from the beginning from 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 its inception from the inception I was there I watched the little thing go in the thing and then it's Uh, on the thing I heard about it I I had heard about it uh, I want to say two years ago now because I was cast in it November of last year, so a year ago uh, at the public, but I had been trying to get in for it, mm-hmm. calling my agent, like, oh, I hear about this thing, and I would, I illegally would get the breakdowns, and I would see, like, I would call and be like, I'm right for this, and this, and this, and this, like, I've got to get in for one of these parts, and it turned out I was right for all of those, because now I <laughs> do play all of those damn parts. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but I could never get in, because, you know, they... These roles were written for these guys, these these awesome guys that are doing these parts. Um, and then when I found out they had, they were looking for a swing downtown. I, I've never swung before, but my agent was like, "Would you want to swing?" And I was like, "I just want to be in that fucking room. I want to do it." And uh, <laughs> I want to be and, in the room. I want to. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Don't yeah. we all? And we yeah. really lucked out because he, you know, a traditional swing covers ensemble roles, which he does cover, like he said, an ensemble role. But also to find a person who had the breadth of talent to be able to cover someone who raps as quickly as David Diggs does, and somebody who you know sings as well and sort of as legitly as the King George needs to sing, and someone who can you know, be humorous and cover this John Lawrence character who's constantly, this Philip, who's like bringing in this sort of swagger. So we lucked out because he really does them all and covers them all really, really, really well. Impossibly well. Oh, thanks, Mom. (laughs) Is that exciting, uh, uh, having to switch back and forth between different things? I mean, with a lot of people that are doing the same role for months and months Mm -hmm. and months, you've got (laughs) to, yeah, you've got to be ready to go on for anything and... Yeah, it keeps you on your toes, you know, <laughs> say, you know, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. So I I feel like I I feel like the best thing that we can do is relax when we're not at the theater because when we're at the theater we're basically just like on high alert. Like even today at the show, we we the show started and we were like it's good and then somebody was out mid show. And <laughs> you can't plan for that. You just have to know what you what you do and then when duty calls have you had in. to go on for somebody mid-show either? Mm. Yes. No, not for me, but... Okay. I have. Um, but, mo- I mean, many of the people in the building who are the offstage covers, swings or understudies, have had to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, he's found out at half hour, which is, yeah. you know, almost just as bad. You know, it's it's equally sort of jarring, especially, like, if you've been someone else in the matinee and then you find out, <laughs> oh, you know, gosh. at half hour that you're going to be someone else in the night. And and he's covering roles. When I was in If Then, I covered two. There's a, there was, like, a four-part 
you know, between like Adina Lachance, Jen Colella, and Tamika, they would sing this song and they all had their own very distinct harmonies. And I covered two of those four women. And it was so hard to go from being like the Elena check to the aunt. Like I watch him covering these men and he knows every single different part of their harmony and I watch him and I and sometimes he's doing one part and then another and it's just what he does is so hard and like he does it so well that it just makes it seem like oh yeah it's cool no big like well, <laughs> singing also- the other like <laughs> and like it's not just like singing different harmonies it's like he's he's like they they interject words here they and there interject words here and there <laughs> um, it's so funny and I was trying to tell my friend because he was like isn't it just amazing to go on and I was like it is amazing to go on yes <laughs> the catch is when you go on, yes, you got to memorize the harmony, which is a different harmony you did at the matinee, and say different words, and you're a different character, and you're standing in a different spot. But also, Alex Lackamore, Granny Winner, Granny Winner is sitting right. in the pit, right in front of you, listening to you. <laughs> you know, so it's like you you can't really fall on your face, and especially it's Hamilton. You know, it's like everyone's coming to see this show and talking about it and breathing it and, and you could fall on your face because you hit that turntable wrong absolutely oh my goodness <laughs> there have been some chips and falls we, yes we've covered them up but there have mm-hmm. certainly been some most of them happen in rehearsal thank goodness you know we have time with the with the sometimes it's just moving faster than, than it looks than you think or like your toe catches a piece that's not moving and that you know sort mm-hmm. of stops your inertia like, mm-hmm it's crazy. How was the rehearsal process with between the leads and the dancers? Because the dancing is pretty near nonstop. I mean, the you guys just go yeah. almost all the time in in wonderful ways. And it, I just look at this and I'm going the, the amount of rehearsal to the, the intricate harmonies, the songs, the, the fast paced rapping, two and a half hours, and then probably what two hours of dance in the. Mm. How was that like? How was that physically accomplished in rehearsals? It was very (laughs) hard. I mean, like the, I mean, he, as you know, he was going back and forth from room to room, right? So we had a room that was having like the scene works, so to speak. And then the room that was doing the majority of the dancing. And it was like, what we would do is we'd put the ensemble. This was like an unprecedented for me me in my career. I can't speak for all of Broadway, but me in my career, this is the most rehearsal that we've ever had. And it was, we needed every last minute of it. And, Mm Andy Blankybuehler is one of the most prepared people I've ever met. And so it's not like he's coming in with like, I have a sort of an inkling of an idea. Like he's coming in with a thing charted and ready to go. And then you're learning from there, you know, throw in the aspect of the turntable and things start to become very confusing. Hmm. Um, but we basically had the dancers early. We had them for a couple weeks, the ensemble members rather, because they're definitely not just dancers. Everyone <laughs> is a triple threat. Um, but we had the ensemble members in early for two weeks, and we did like a workshop with them. We had a workshop back two years ago where we did um, just dancing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Alex Lackmore actually on the Broadway rehearsal started with the entire cast for a week, I think, and he did just, just music. music. <laughs> so that they knew all the music before we even begun the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is after we had done the show. And this was, yeah. And we all knew after the show. After two versions of the show. Yes. There was a, many people were there for the workshop, and then, you know, almost all of us were there for the off-Broadway production. So, yeah, it was quite a bit of rehearsal. The logistics of it were sort of hard to manage now that we're moving into um, Was it like you'd have a stand-in for the leads going, you're dancing around him here, and you're and they're in the other room, they're working and um, It was going. a lot of, you know, we have Javier <laughs> Munoz. He is um, Lynn's uh, cover. And so much of the time when Lynn was in the other room, because remember, Lynn wasn't always wasn't only just in the other room as a principal. He was in the other room as the writer, writer of the yeah. show. Um, so and writing, yeah. and actively and writing right. in the rehearsals. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so Javier would step in, and we would actually set numbers with Javier. And Lynn 
Javi would learn it from Lynn. Right. So um, so that was definitely the case. But then also a lot of it is really about, you know, I say the the most difficult thing was really that like the turntable because it requires a lot of imagination, like harder than imagining like Eliza Hamilton will be here. Like imagine like the turntable is going to be moving at approximately two miles per hour and you're going to end, you know, 380 degrees from where you are now. And then when you're there, you know, it's, it was, that part was actually, I think the hardest and the, part. And the there's the inner one that goes the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> and trying to explain to someone who's like never seen it. Well, like me and Andy are like, you know, and Tommy and everybody is in this room sort of like tinkering with like a, you know, a model there no one has seen that best, oh my gosh the one this took my breath away um but there was one day they were doing non-stop and they were retooling non-stop for uptown and andy has it in his head andy's a genius so andy sees this choreography happening on the turntable in a room with no turntable <laughs> and so he had choreographed it him and steph set it on the dancers and then Lynn and Tommy were out of the room. So he brought Lynn and Tommy in and they did the number and Lynn and Tommy were were like, wait, I don't understand where are they going kind of a thing. And so I watched, they reset the number and Andy took Lynn and Tommy and walked them in a circle while the number was happening so they could see it from the audience's perspective. And it was just like, it blows my mind. We're going to be right back with the actors from Hamilton. If you are a regular listener or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. The thing that really took me aback when I was casting the show downtown was how cohesive this creative team is. They speak with one voice. You, La Alex will give you an acting note. Tommy will give a note about the dance. Andy will give a note about acting or something doesn't sound right. They all have each other's back. There was never one moment in rehearsal where one member of the creative team said something and then there was like, ooh, wait, let, let us powwow for a second, which normally happens a lot in show business. Everybody agrees with everybody. And, and I feel like that was so important getting this show up on its feet because <laughs> it's dense. <laughs> and, yeah, it is. and our leaders had to have a very clear and concise point of view for, uh, for them to pass it on to us and then have a yeah. collaborative, creative experience. Absolutely. And and it's dense for the, I mean, the ensemble's on a lot. I think you that know, for, you know, the whole time. The yeah. whole, they don't have more yeah. than like a four minute break yeah. in the entire show. And I think that three minute break happens maybe twice. <laughs> there's, there's yeah, there's no going to, go to your back. dressing room and <laughs> yeah. like fix your hair and look at Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> like, they say that they have like, key anxiety because like once you start you can't go to the bathroom like god forbid mm -hmm. you've drank too much water or coffee before <laughs> the show yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean they're really just on nonstop. <laughs> so uh what are you some of you, what are your like favorite moments in the show to to perform mm. is there anything that you how about me uh i love to perform non i know i love to perform um my shot as john lawrence is just like a really cool moment on the American musical stage, I think. The, the way that number is constructed is brilliant. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it is the perfect build to a musical number. It starts small. The seed is planted of the hook of the song, like a pop song. And then it's repeated with a few more people. Yeah. And then by the end, it's, it's essentially a nation of people saying that they're going to go after what they want. And then John Lawrence is kind of the person that takes that idea that Hamilton had and takes it to the streets. And the way that number is choreographed with, with those lifts, with the girls, and the people are running around and saying, hey, did you hear that? It's just like super cool. And the audience has never seen this before. So the audience, for all intents and purposes, is on that same journey with you while you're doing it. And their eyes are wide when you look out there. They're just like like sponges taking it in. I love that that number. You know, for, for everything that's involved with this being, you know, non-traditional casting of our founding fathers and that it's rap about the... The amazing thing I felt for me is I, I've, I felt like looking at like Leslie Odom, you know, Jr., that I was, I was not thinking of he's representing, you know, uh, Aaron Burr. You know, at the end, I'm going, that's Aaron Burr. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and everybody's their character. I wasn't even thinking, you know, in some Brechtian way that they're separated or that it was... I'm just like watching and going, this this is the story. This is who they are. Yeah, I, th- I think that's like <laughs> really the exciting thing that people come and they realize. The funny thing is, is like if we cast this as a bunch of white people that were the age and the similarity, like we'd watch it now and we would say, oh, that's then. Mm-hmm. But in casting it this way, like this is what the revolution looks like right now. Like so we actually comprehend them as the revolutionaries that they are trying to embody. I think that's the interesting thing. It's like approaching the casting from the other side. It's 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 basically us looking at people right now. It's like that's what it would look like right now if we had this. And so it's funny because people are like, oh, it's all non-traditional. Like actually, in fact, I think that what we've done is we've made it like traditionally now. And so mm-hmm. people are able to relate to it in a way that I don't think people have ever been able to relate to American history. Certainly not myself. I couldn't have cared less before. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have David Diggs rapping in Guns and Ships about like how we're going to go to Yorktown and we need Hamilton who like he speaks French also. And I'm like, yes, this is what we need for Yorktown. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I've never been excited about that before, but it's thrilling. And it's because he's saying it the way that he's saying it with his voice and his body and his mouth and the way he looks. Um, the so, the yeah. non-traditional casting forces, it forced me to hear the story because if, if it had not been this way, I don't think people would hear the actual story that's being told. I feel like it, we would get caught up with the facts and, and was this real? You know, it's, it's like, and it's also just a beautiful mix of, yes, the casting is non-traditional, but the way in which it's told is also non-traditional. So those two things marry one another and create an experience that we've never experienced before. So it like rewires your brain in a w- weird way. And then the other day I thought about, just like what you said, this man is not representing Aaron Burr, he is Aaron Burr. So think about that from a child's eyes. Yeah. I think about a child who's coming to see this show, which we are starting to get kids. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from a few that I know, they go to school and they learn about these people and they look at them in the book and they're like, this guy's supposed to be black, (laughs) which gives me chills to even repeat it because it's unlocking something in their brain as well, that that if if they are a different race, that they can achieve something the way Alexander Hamilton achieved it. Um, So it's empowering a, a generation of kids which is i think what theater should be yeah. should be doing is 
empowering people and making them feel and want to do better. For the second, I know you guys got to get over to the theater. And yes. Are, do you know if either of you are going on tonight? Um, what, it's 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 interesting because right now it's what six oh four. It's too early for us. Yeah. For our people, our people like to call. We're not scheduled to be, but you never know. Crazier things have happened for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, um, again, um, Andrew Chappelle and Stephanie Clemens. I thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories and talking thank about Hamilton you. and your careers. And uh, I wish you the best in a long, happy run with Hamilton. Thanks thank so you. much, Broadway Bullet. Listening Room. Adam Guan is hard at work on his next show, String, and he's given us a two-song preview from that. So we're going to play the first of those two songs right now. This is called Uncharted Territory. It's performed by Heidi Blickenstaff with Carrie Anderson, Jeff Packard, Zachary Prince, and Katie Thompson. I hear the building sigh, a little night shift song. Cause there is only so much that a God 
uncharted territory. That's Uncharted Territories, a new song from the new musical string that Adam Guan is currently writing. Find out more about Adam by going to his website at www.adamgwon.com. All right, we're going to hear one more song from that show later in the podcast. Up Close. I am sitting with James Tyler, who is uh, emerging, do we all hate that word, emerging playwright, <laughs> with some incredible things been happening for him. He just finished up the Dramatists Guild uh, Fellowship yeah. program, uh, and he's now in the Juilliard, and there's another one, he's, he's lining up fellowships, he's, he's ready to burst out, and uh, he's here with you guys to share, uh, share what's going on, with how you doing? Fine. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I, I mangled those credits pretty good, so I'm sure you uh, are, are better at explaining some of these things that are happening. Well, you got Juilliard right, <laughs> <laughs> which is great because it took me like three, I applied three times to get in. So mm -hmm. first time I was like a finalist, interviewed, you know, and, and got the crushing blow that I didn't get in. Um, so I like tried again the next year. And I the next year I did it, I like, wholeheartedly believed that the play I submitted was so much stronger than the previous year, but I guess mm -hmm. the readers did not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was just flat out denied. And then I was like, okay, let's just do this. Or they're going, no, yeah, he has greatly improved. He can spell now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Less typos. <laughs> and then I did it the, um, you know, this yeah. third go round and it, it worked out finally. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and and they're all they're all it's all paying off, and and I think that's worth a lot of people hearing because I, I saw an interview with you, and I, I really love the quote. It was something along the lines of "How do you mark the years?" And you answered like, "It's by I got turned down by the O'Neill, I got turned <laughs> yeah. down by this, I got turned down by that again." Oh, yeah, and that's that, how I mark the years. You, there's going to be a lots of as you know, you know, there's <laughs> lots of rejection along the way. You just have to like pick yourself up. Don't take it personal. You know, you don't. You just don't know who's reading your stuff. You don't know, you know, people have their, their taste. You know, we see things through our individual lenses. So um, I did not try to, one thing I kept trying to remind myself is that, you know, it's not necessarily me. You know, you're always striving to improve as a writer, but um, I just didn't take it personal. I just didn't yeah. take it personal and I just, you just keep applying. Yeah, no. so you know, yeah. Todd Ristow, my my main professor, always said you know, to all of us, it's like you really got to learn how to separate uh, people criticizing your work mm -hmm. versus people criticizing you. Exactly. And I think for writers, that is a, a hard thing because oh, the, the work can feel so much a part of us. Exactly. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I think a lot of us are um, writing from very some personal experiences, or you know, mm -hmm. based off of you know, stuff with family or friends or, you know, so when you do get those, um, you know, rejections. Saying that's not important is saying yeah, my yeah. experience <laughs> isn't important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In I a think, way. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people start to think that, but um, you can't, you can't, you got to just keep, keep going. 
so has this felt like a magical year then? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Um, so I also am doing the mini voices fellowship at the playwright center, which, you know, is, uh, how do you do many fellowships at once? <laughs> you know what? Um, I went through NYU's graduate dramatic writing program, which is a great training ground for like being able to juggle lots of projects at once. Um, it's a program where, although my concentration was playwriting, we cross trained in that program. So we wrote screenplays and also like spec television scripts and original pilots and, you know, one professor did not say, oh, well, I'm going to give you, I know you got 50 pages due for that other class, so how about you just ignore my class? It was not like that, you know? <laughs> um, people wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, and you just you made it happen, which I thought was helpful because, you know, as playwrights, we're always in our head. We're always overthinking stuff. Mm -hmm. And so um, that program was about just doing it, you know? You've learned all of these um you know, the rules and structure and, you know, um, what's supposed to happen on page 15. Now just do it. You know, mm -hmm. you outlined um, your screenplay, do it. You have no time to like play around. So that, um, it just stays with me, you know, with these other fellowships that now I'm, I'm juggling. Yeah. And one thing I want to talk to you a little about a little later on in this interview and probably save it for like the <clears throat> full un unedited interview post is a little discussion on our experience with MFA grad programs and, and yeah. what the importance of that is. So that's a reason to maybe tune into the full one if you're listening to the edited version in our main program. Um, so with these fellows, with fellowship programs, like what are the expectations of you as a writer? When you, when you get a fellowship mm -hmm. for those writers who are hoping, you know, and, and looking at these then what are the what is the realities of the expectations when you get it um the realities are to produce more work <laughs> and i find that a lot of the fellowships um do not you know they want you to produce new work it's not work that you have like you know i wrote a play at nyu they don't want that play coming <laughs> back you know <laughs> because it's been workshopped and you already got you know feedback from other people about it so now it's time to generate some new work and um you know and discuss it here let it be shaped here so yeah that's it <laughs> there's been a trend and i definitely feel this is a little bit of the case with uh the recent trend of people workshopping you know things to death so to mm -hmm. speak endless rounds of workshops endless rounds of workshops endless yeah. fix this fix that fix this workshop fix this without ever really putting it on its feet yeah which is we're still despite readings it's a reading is not a production mm -hmm that um in a way we feel like we're i feel like sometimes other people have said that we're almost infantilizing the writer yeah and and that everybody else's opinion is almost expected to be more important you know mm -hmm. so <laughs> quote, yeah. In a, yeah and whereas people don't look at a shakespeare play and go that's problematic let's fix it mm -hmm. they go how can we make this work what's been your experience why do you think what what has happened with playwriting that people are are looking at us as as a problem child that needs fixed <laughs> I have no idea, but I know one of the things that I love about um, being at Juilliard right now with Marsha Norman and Chris Durang is that they, a part of that training is empowering us as writers to like, you know, really be confident about knowing your play more than anyone else. That doesn't mean you mm -hmm. don't, you know, listen and be respectful when you're getting feedback, but you know how your play, how you want it to work, 
um, you know when to say, ah, nope, too, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're talking too much, you know? <laughs> I don't need to hear this, this isn't healthy for me, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think that's something important in, um, in fellowships and also being read to death because unfortunately it seems like you have to be read to death these mm-hmm. days before you get that production mm-hmm. um, is just being confident about knowing your work better than anyone else will know it. You know, when you have a reading, you know, and you go watch your reading, what are you looking for? What, what, what are the most useful things that you find that you take away? Oh, you know what? I definitely sit in the back and I watch the audience. I'm listening to the play but I am watching the audience. I am, you know, there's, you know, when I'm alone writing at my desk, I'm like cracking up at certain parts and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is where they are supposed to laugh. And so if they laugh, I'm just like, yes. If they don't laugh, I'm like, oh, okay, let's go back and fix that, you know? Um, and last Monday when, when I just had a reading recently, there was- Which the people here at Drama Skilled Fund were raving, by the way. Good to hear. (laughs) Um, For that reading, I knew that there is um, a shift from comedy to something very serious and kind of heartbreaking um, at the end of the first scene. And um, I I nailed it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because I could hear the audience going, oh, you know, and just, you know, so the mood changed in the room and you can just feel it. Um, But, you know, there's been times also where I'm like, you know, okay, I want this to be very serious. And the actor delivers the line and delivers it the way I can, you know, hear it in my head. And the audience goes, you know, they start cracking up. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, okay. So that line doesn't work. Let's try something else. I don't don't know this particular play, but Uh I, I mean, I do think laughter can reveal there can be deep truths and deep meaning under i just, I just saw daddy Long. have you seen daddy long legs yet i haven't seen it yet there are truly moments where i was laughing and crying at the oh, same time yeah, and not crying so like true. i was laughing so hard right. but I was, truly, I was laughing and crying uh-huh. at the same, it was yeah yeah i know yeah i have to keep that in mind because i know sometimes even for me i laughed to to, to cover the tears you know so yeah i have to be observant of that and and the line was funny and heartbreaking i mean it truly was like heartbreaking and funny at the same time Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so tell us a little bit of maybe tell us about a couple of your favorite works you know whether they're in in process or or not just what give us a sample of what you like to cover oh do you know what i Fingers crossed we'll have a production this summer of the first full-length play I've worked on. Um, it's titled Some Old Black Man, and it is based off of me just thinking about my parents' generation of my parents are booby mm-hmm. baby boomers. Booby babies. Booby babies. Booby babies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they're baby boomers, and then, you know, my grandparents, um, you know, and their generation of, you know, um, coming of age in America and the, the, the differences and the similarities. And so I crafted a, a two-hander um, 
with characters from both generations. I, I have not taken on a two-hander yet. That's got to be Oh, man. Rough. My classmates were saying, you're nuts. Why, <laughs> why would you do this to yourself? And it took so many years to, like, figure it out. It took... I started writing it in 2010. And I figured it out, like, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Five years? Yeah. <laughs> to really figure it out and um <laughs> it, it was rough it was rough but i i finally figured it out and now i'm so excited to um see it produced and see what happens with it we had a reading um last summer at berkshire playwrights lab that went really well i still know there's mm. some things that i um need to fix in the play but um We'll we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, well, somebody I think they interviewed this week said uh, a, a play's never really finished; it just gets performed. Right, that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, because even with the reading last year, mm-hmm. until I mean, minutes before the reading the reading started, um, we were still working on stuff, and I was changing lines, and thankfully the actors were game, so. <laughs> Yeah, for you, what's what is the writing process for you? For instance, like right before we talked, I, I told you a little bit about kind of my basic genesis. What, what is it? Do you do you like sit down with paper or you know? I mean, yeah. is, are you a structure oriented guy or what? What is your kind of process? You know, what, you, I always I when I first started writing plays um, in 2010, I would have paper and. Um, pencil and say oh and i told myself oh i have to do it this way Mm -hmm. i can't just like open a computer you're not gonna do as much thinking if you do it that way Mm -hmm. that ended after like a couple months Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i do all of my um pre-writing um you know microsoft word um and for me it's all about characters i think about character first and their voice and their age and what they look like um so i have the characters even before I even have a a story formed and sometimes just getting them in a room speaking with each other will start the story, you know, that it'll start to form that way. Um, And it has to be a quiet room. I cannot work. I used to try to work Mm -hmm. in coffee shops. I even (laughs) tried it this summer and I was just, I, I can't, there's too much noise. There's other people around. So um, I usually write, in my apartment where it's like super quiet um and just let let it flow basically (laughs) yeah all right thanks for coming on in and best of luck over the next year and further same to you thank you for having me same to you (laughs) up close I am really very excited to be in the presence of uh, one of the members of the Rockefeller family of Sydney, Australia, (laughs) Jonathan Rockefeller, who now lives in New York and is bringing The Very Hungry Caterpillar, an adaptation of the popular book as a children's play, which I believe played in Sydney as well. It still is there. It still is there. (laughs) It started in Sydney. Debuted at the Sydney Festival in 2000 and what year we're in now? 
Um, <laughs> and it's been playing ever since. And we have to say, to have that much of a response for a children's show is phenomenal. Uh, we've now got our tour lined up for the next two years. So it's what we call an evergreen show, I guess you could say. We just wait for the kids to grow up and then a new batch can come and see it. <laughs> and uh, now what, what all did you do with this show? So I was the uh, creator of the show and we had a wonderful, wonderful team that helped pull it together. Um, I got the opportunity to work very closely with Eric Carl himself and his team up in Northampton. Uh, and we essentially were working out ways to bring his books to life in a three-dimensional context, which is a challenge because every single one of those 41 million children who have been brought up on this mm. book have their own expectation on what the caterpillar should look like, even if it's just a flat image. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to go through a process to bring dimension to all these different characters. So we're not just doing one book, we're actually doing four of Eric Carl's books. Um, and then of course we built some very, very beautiful puppets. There's 75 puppets in the show. Um, and they're very, very large, very colorful, very beautiful. And uh, they make parents cry. You can, <laughs> you can just see the nostalgia coming off their eyes more than anything else. The kids love it. They, they sit there. They wait for the rock star to come out, our little caterpillar who comes out at the very, very end. Um, but it's a fantastic show. I'm saying that because yeah. I also made it, but, you know, it is a good <laughs> <Yeah>. show. <laughs> now, um, what attracts you to children's theater? And I guess I'm assuming you, you have you done other children's theater stuff as well, besides adapting these four things, right? I've worked in the mm -hmm. children's space a lot, but mm -hmm. to be honest, this was my first children's okay. work. Um, I think because my mind is probably like an eight-year-old's, um, it's a very good fit to begin with. But bef the project I worked on before this one was actually a parody production using the Golden Girls. Um, so <laughs> if you can imagine the Golden Girls made up of Muppet-like characters and, and doing everything that puppets can do, that's where my adventures into puppetry started. Um, and then we wanted to turn it into something a little bit more serious, a little bit more fun, a little bit more enduring, a little bit more educational, I guess, rather than cheesecake jokes. Um, so I was very attracted to working with Eric Carl. I've always loved his art. His art is absolutely beautiful. And I think it was a, just a wonderful opportunity to be able to do so. Um, a little bit later on in this interview, I definitely want to talk, uh, about how you acquire rights, because it's something that I know a lot of people are puzzled about and big topics. I just am letting our listeners know this. That'll probably be in like the full unedited interview for portion, but uh, I definitely want to circle back to that. What what was the decision or what was the process bringing it from Sydney to New York, which you open on January 30th? Uh, or, January 30th yeah. in next year. Very soon. <laughs> yeah. We've just been casting this week. Uh, the, it was really no big decision to bring it here. I mean, we, we've, it was the fastest selling show in Australia during the Sydney festival. It's been having sold out crowds ever since. And every time we do the show, uh, so you was, say that so like, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's, I, I, we got very lucky. We, we have had a great team that put a great show together and there's a receptive audience for the. For the, for the show. So, um, you know, I'm not saying it's rocket science or genius what we've created, but it is it is some bringing something new to it. We have a very beautiful piece of sophisticated children's theatre. 
it's not a piece of theatre where we've got people with symbols at the top of the front of the stage yeah. and they're all getting everyone up to dance and sing. This is a piece of theatre you can take your children to and really introduce them to the theatre, just like Eric Carle's The Very Hungry Caterpillar is their first book. We regard this as the proper, first proper theatrical experience that they will have. So that was our guiding light to actually create it in the first place. Now, so, are parents going to want to sit through this with their kids, or is it going to be like, I love you, you love me? <laughs> no, that's that's my entire point. That's my entire point. We don't have any naff singing. We don't have any of that sort of thing. Um, naff, i got to remember that one. That's a good one. <laughs> The whole point is... That I can use to insult singers without them knowing it. <laughs> You're singing. How was it? Really naff. <laughs> uh, and, and so, we, you know, it's wonderful to see families come. And th they have a conversation during the piece, which is wonderful because they're guessing what's going to happen next. It's not about, hey, mum, look at that. Let's sing this song. Why aren't you singing? It's really about... How did they do that? Where did that trick come from? I mean, we use very old school theatrical tricks on stage um, to bring the puppetry to life and, and emerge from different places on the stage. And I think that that magic is something that we're introducing the children to. And that's what they're responding to more so than anything else. It's just storytelling, storytelling on stage. Now, I, I think this has been, how long has this book been around? I think, I mean, this. It's been around for 47 years. Yeah, it's a little older than me. So I'm pretty sure I probably read it when I was little because I was I'd a be avid surprised. reader. I do like to, I don't remember it very well, but well, I'm pretty sure. This I'm is gonna, what I do like to say to people. It sold 41 million yeah. copies, which if you think about it, that's more than, than uh, more people than have seen The Lion King. That's, now, I just hope that <laughs> we get that kind of audience, but, yeah. you know, you know it's solid numbers. A lot of people have read this book. Well, obviously, I mean, you're from Sydney, and you do. How popular is this around the world? I don't know if I necessarily realized this was. I think Eric has beyond. sold last count. I think 137 million copies worldwide throughout all these. So titles. this is so you're going to have it's, like the Okinawa production soon too, right? Uh, well, yes, <laughs> it will. It, we'll be we'll be going more places. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> Which is exciting. It's exciting. So um, I understand, at least looking at your webpage, that you have a little bit of an association with Baz Luhrmann as well. I do, but in Australia they call it Baz. Baz. <laughs> I am sorry for being so naff. <laughs> no, it's, it's because Americans try and make it sound very more elegant. So <laughs> Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> so how's Baz? <laughs> What, 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 and I can see with puppetry, I mean, Baz Luhrmann, I'm going to have to get used to Are you to that. saying that Baz is a puppet? No, no. <laughs> he has a very distinctive visual style, and he's very he big and very theatrical. And I can kind of see puppetry coming out of that. But um, what is it like associating with, with a guy who has such a distinctive, uh, what's the right word even, uh, vision? Uh, you know, I guess it doesn't. Well, I mean, Baz is, is a very, very interesting person to talk about. The It's never just singularly his vision, though. He is, surrounds himself by a wonderful team. And part of that team is Catherine Martin, who, last count, has won a lot more Academy Awards than he has. Um, <laughs> so it, it's a really team effort. And he, he's got great music guys. He's got great scenic guys. Catherine does her thing. And together, um, you know, script, he works with Craig a lot on his script work. They're a team, and they worked out what has works for them. Um, now, I will say that when I first met him and I had my first interview with him, one of the questions he asked me was, 
why do you want to work with for me? Because consider me an oak tree, mm-hmm. your little acorn is not going to grow underneath my oak, so, which is, mm-hmm. you know, very poetic and everything. And so I just told him, well, that's fine. I just want your job. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you do with him? Um, so, and what did you take from him? You know? Well, uh, I started, um, let, let me tell you a bit of a story. So okay. I decided when I was in high school that if, because I wanted to get into filmmaking, the best person that I could possibly have to teach me was Baz Luhrmann. So I started, I made all these pop-up books and sent them off to him explaining who I was and why he should take me on. And they're great pop-up books. I should sell them. <laughs> um, but And then I got a phone call from his assistant and said, well, Baz is out of town, uh, but when he's back, he'd like to meet you. Can you send us some of your films? So I sent off the films, waited and waited and waited and waited. (laughs) And so I thought, well, I'm just going to speed this up. So I got a cardboard sign saying Bazmark, which is the name of his film company, Bazmark or Bust, and sat in his gutter. And (laughs) (laughs) And then... Suddenly, I had an interview with him. <laughs> <laughs> like, get this bum out of my gutter. All right, exactly. I, I do that in an Australian accent. If I could do a good Australian accent. <laughs> so um, I then, uh, you know, we had many chats. The f- uh, he didn't hire me at first, that's for sure. But over time, I was then brought on as his um, apprentice slash assistant or assistant in the film. It depends mm-hmm. what he was calling me, whatever day. Um, and I was literally by his side from the moment he woke up to the moment he went back to bed. So what I got to learn during that time period was everything, absolutely everything, dealing with people of all different um, affiliations and organizations and superstars and, and how to do deals and editing the works. I could not have asked for a better mentor or learning experience at that age. So. Any any like anecdotes in particular, things that you learned or things that you saw him do that you're like, yeah, that's what I'm going to take away? Well, the biggest thing I would say that I took away from him is is collaboration. I know that everyone externally sees Baz Luhrmann as big, big names and big words, but he's a true collaborator. And that's the one thing that I really, really learned and, and cherished from my time being there is that you have to respect everybody in the room and actually hear their opinions because... If they can think of a better idea than you, then the, ultimately the show is going to be better. So that's, that's the biggest learning, I thought. What's in the water down under <laughs> for, for, for entertainment? I, I think per capita, you guys have to have sent America way more people in entertainment than anybody I can think of. It, it seems like it, you can't shake a stick without running into an actor, director, somebody who's Australian in this business. Well, that's true. But I think that stems out of uh, another big thing there is sport. So you're either in sport or you're in the arts. (laughs) Somewhere in between is banking and everything else. But, um, you know, there is an old saying that they say, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. But I think that it's the reverse. If Mm -hmm. you can make it in Australia with a population that is one-tenth of the size, you Mm -hmm. can probably actually come over here and make an impression with a larger audience. I think that's probably actually why it's happened that way um and also the australian accent is incredibly hard to master it is the, <laughs> i know I, I can do a fair that. amount of accents and i just i, I can do british <laughs> well i can't get australian meryl streep said that she couldn't do it um yeah. and she tried very very hard <laughs> 
But and I think because of that, the Australians are more adept at picking up other accents, so they're able to blend and do. That do, do you have an well. American accent? I have letters of oh. <laughs> American accent, but I'm not as strong Australian as, okay. as other people. Okay, well, can you can you can you do an American accent? Um, no, I think you I can. Oh, I, love <laughs> <laughs> I, I love hearing foreigners. But I, get, I do get approached and and said, "Hey, are you from England?" <laughs> It's like originally somehow I guess <laughs> before they shipped there's, you off. In there's a... some convicts and free settlers <laughs> in there, but I guess I'm from England. <laughs> but uh, also, like when I tell you what's in the water, is is the educational system really arts driven? Is you know? Well, I, I do. I have actually looked a lot into the high school systems and everything here. When you can't come out of high school in Australia, you already have your goal of what you want and you that's the university course there's no sophomore years there's no general learning here so i think everyone is much more driven at a young age to go this is where what i want to be when i grow up and they wholeheartedly embrace that and tackle that so i think so do you have the helicopter parents there like we do here (laughs) (laughs) sending you every minute of every activity to get you there uh i think there's certainly some of those i can (laughs) i could probably say that i dragged my parents to take me places but i think it's you know i think that it's probably a little bit more relaxed there probably a bit more relaxed but you do have a very specific when i'm 18 years old and i leave school i want to be a and that's the university course. And, and what was your blank? Because I'm getting Papa Deer, Papa Booker, <laughs> filmmaker. What was your A blank? That well, I, I actually, I, I, I kind of bucked the trend. I decided to start university really early while I was still at school and studied advertising. Um, and then as soon as I technically would have finished school, at 17, I got into film school. So, so you were like the slacker then. Like, he doesn't know what he wants to do. <laughs> Oh my God, he's 18 and he has no idea what he wants to do with his life. Oh, is that yeah, what that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, any parting shots you'd like to get out there before we wrap this up? Oh, um. <laughs> uh, I have nothing witty in mind. <laughs> Oh, all right. Don't, don't, don't put that on my tombstone. <laughs> Sophisticated, just just nothing witty. <laughs> yeah, and uh, if you go check out our photo, all all the girls listening who liked his voice, you will be pleased looking at Jonathan Rockefeller too. He's a handsome man, putting on wonderful children's theater. And thank you, Jonathan Rockefeller, for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Wish you the best of luck with the Very Hungry Caterpillar. Thank you. Listening Room. We got that second song from Adam Guan's new musical, String. This song is called Just Curious, and it's performed by Jeff Packard and Heidi Blickenstaff. Sometimes I get sweaty, and my palms, they start to tremble. It's a problem. Like I cannot hold a pen Then I start to stammer And my knees, they start to buckle And I start to hyperventilate again No, clearly this isn't normal Oh, shouldn't this uniform Allow me to bring women to their knees 
Sure, I know it's basement scented. Sure, also it's only rented. But can it count for something? I mean, geez, I'm just curious how some guys have this swagger through and through. I'm just curious how people do it. For example, you. And you're definitely right. It's not attractive. I don't always. Do you need to take a pill? I'll be fine. Maybe you can tell me why the people in this building keep pursuing romance, though it makes them ill. They live in this little bubble. They don't see the heaps of trouble caused by foolish matters of the heart. Scores settled by jealous rivals, wars threatening their own survivals, or guys like you who simply come apart. Oh, I'm just curious how people bear the mess their hearts create. I'm just curious why people think this love thing is so great it's not it's not it's, it's actually, actually terrible. terrible it gives me hives it makes no sense it's all a pain yes, yes love is, is objectively, objectively terrible it ruins lives it makes me tense i'm, I'm not The pulse is racing The goo-goo eyes, the self-effacing The, the horror and the wonder of it all Why would you fall? Just curious Just curious Call. Well, that wraps up volume 704. We got more great stuff coming to you next week, including an interview with Patrick Noonan, actor in Sheer Madness. But we've also got uh, somebody that I've interviewed a couple times before and helped me snag her now that she is president of Actors Equity. Yes, Kate Schindel comes in and and talks about Actors Equity in a very, very candid way. I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. So I'd also like to remind you to really go check out uh, SeatGeek.com. Uh, download the app onto your phone and use the promo code BB, uh, BB20 for $20 off your first order. It's really a pretty great service. Uh, let me know what you think. I would also like to thank our other sponsors. Our location sponsors this season were the DG Fund, 
Yes, thanks again. And uh, Sheer Madness, they uh, let us use their rehearsal space. So uh, they they helped make this show happen. So support them back. All right. Um, with that, I am Michael Gilbo. I am your host and uh, producer. And the associate producer for this season is Ronnie Jones. Thank you, Ronnie. And I hear she actually made the move to New York City. So... A little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that, to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.